We are in the book of the Judges. Today is part 11. Part 11 of our journey through the Judges. If you're joining us for the first time today, Israel finds themselves in turbulent times. These are the dark days of the Judges. They are. It's a dark, dark time for the covenant people of God. We see how they are in rebellion to God time and time again. The Judges picks up after the story of Joshua, the conquest of the land. Joshua goes in. They take the land that God has promised. They take at least most of the land God has promised. And the reason it's most and not all, according to Judges 2.22, is so that God may test the subsequent generations of Israel to see if they're going to be obedient, to see if they're going to be faithful the way their parents were. And of course, they're not. They're not at all. They go into the land and they settle, literally, figuratively, oh, we don't need to finish driving out the other inhabitants of the land. Big mistake. Because the inhabitants of the land introduce the people to foreign gods and their hearts begin to turn away from God. And that's the story. As a result, God raises up foreign nations to oppress His people. And then eventually His people cry out to Him to intervene. God hears their cries and then raises up judges or really deliverers because these deliverers aren't doing any type of legal type thing in most instances. They're military deliverers. And He'll raise them up and they'll drive away the foreign threat and then the people will be good for a while. And then they will once again turn their backs on God and leave the path that they should be on. Each time progressively getting worse and worse and worse. As we were introduced last week to the man Gideon in Judges chapter 6, Israel has been oppressed by the Midianites, the Malachites, the people of the East for now seven years. They've been brought very low financially, emotionally. I mean, the Midianites are just pillagers. I mean, just imagine, I think we talked about this, you're working for seven years, you go cash your paycheck, and as soon as you cash your paycheck, there are the Midianites, give it to me, right? Just give it to me. For seven years. You think that's going to get old? Absolutely. And eventually the people cry out to God for help, and he raises up Gideon. But Gideon, very much like Moses, doesn't want to go. In fact, actually blames the entire situation on God. Instead of taking responsibility, nope, puts it off on God. Well, he asked in the conversation with the Lord, as we saw last week, he asked for a sign, and God gives him a sign. He says, can you stay there one second? I want to go give you a present. Goes, makes some food, brings the food back. He says, you can just lay it there on the rock. All right, set it right there. Yep, just like that. Just pour the broth on it. Okay, stand back. The angel of the Lord touches with his staff the food. Boom, fire encompasses it. And then the angel of the Lord, gone. At that point, Gideon has his sign. He realizes everything has now been credible that this divine envoy has been speaking to him. God gives him his first assignment. There's a pagan altar in your village, Gideon. That's not going to fly. Go tear it down. Gideon's scared. He's scared. So he goes at night. He gets some of the other servants to help him. Because what will people think if they find out he was responsible for tearing down the pagan altar in his own town? Well, that's where we pick up in today's story. Part 11, starting in chapter 6, verse 28. Remember, Gideon's just torn down this statue, this altar, Baal. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, 
Behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. Gideon got, brought a bull, hooked it up to the altar, used it to tear it down, and then afterwards he used the bull and actually sacrificed it to God, built an altar to God. That's the reference there. Verse 29, And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they found out. They said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. He's in trouble. And the irony is, the people of the town are treating him like a criminal, when in reality, they're the criminals. You see that? They're they're now saying, Gideon has to die. They're imposing the death sentence on Gideon, and the irony is, the very sentence that they're imposing on Gideon should be the sentence that's being imposed upon them. And what we see here is a further example of the canonization of Israel. And when I say canonization, I mean, remember, introduction, Israel doesn't drive out the nations around them. Instead, they decide, eh, it'll be okay, right? Like, I'll go to this party, and and it'll be okay, right? And what happens, right? They go into this environment, they don't drive out the nations, and the nations pull them away from God. Well, that's what I mean by the canonization of Israel. Israel becoming like the people around them who are just terrible influences on them. What makes it even more marvelous is the fact that God is even the slightest bit interested in delivering them. Remember last week I said they cried out to God for help. But that cry does not involve repentance. It's more like, ooh, I stubbed my foot, somebody help me. Of course, it's painful, right? But they don't want forgiveness. They don't want to repent. They just want God's help. They just Because we don't like feeling uncomfortable. We don't like experiencing discomfort. But that's it. And, and it's evident by how the people in his town, his neighbors, who are supposed to be the covenant people of God, how they respond. They're more mad that Gideon did the right thing. They want him dead, even though that should be the penalty reserved for them. And you say, wow. How is that fair? How is that right? Think it only happens in Judges 6? No. Of course not. It happens throughout the whole Bible. It happened to Jesus. Talk about unfair things. It happens in 2019. It's upsetting. It's infuriating. Here's Gideon. I gave him a hard time last week. Being a little bit of a pansy. Going out at night. Because he was scared. Yeah, I probably would have been scared too. But you, you could say he is trying to do the right thing. And you think of it from a perspective of the covenant people of God in 2019. You see how far his townspeople have drifted from God. The canonization of Israel. I make the argument there's a canonization of the people of God today. Um, even this over the weekend. We rent a United Methodist Church, but over the weekend, they they had a conference to vote 
will the church accept the progressive LGBTQIA agenda? Or will they not? Talk about the church being pulled by the world. I'm listening to Al Mohler, the briefing podcast, which I'm sure all of you guys are listening to Al Mohler every day. And uh, he's talking about, last week, one of the liberal churches in Canada. I don't know which one, one of them. And uh, they had an issue. They, they were trying to decide whether or not to excommunicate or get rid of their female pastor. You think of all the reasons why you might remove a pastor, okay? All the reasons. You think, man, it must be a really good, good reason. And the reason, the reason that they were trying to decide whether or not to remove her is because she's an atheist. She no longer believes in God. You say, Okay, you think, like, if all the things you need to believe to be a pastor, right? You would think, if there was just one thing, right? Just one. <laughs> so many, right? Just believe in God. She doesn't. The church decides, the church decides, well, we weighed the legal cost, and it's just not going to be worth it for us to do it. You think about the story that Gideon finds himself in, right? It's not just Israel that's being pulled away by the world to look like the world, to be like the world, being influenced like the world. It happens, it happens today. It happens by individuals who come and speak at the world's most exciting university as well. It does. It does. People who hold the title of pastor and they get celebrities like Justin Bieber to come to their church and then when they're asked about issues so black and white like life, like sexuality, they and their wives respond, well, it's not our place to say. It's not our place to tell people what they should or should not believe. Folks, that's the point of a church. Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples, teaching them all the things that I have commanded you, right? Like, if you're not telling people how to follow Jesus, like, you can't even call yourself a church, let alone a pastor. But that's my point. The people in, in Gideon's town, they want him dead, and he's the one doing the right thing. He's the one, you know, trying to obey God. Now, you might expect this, okay, if the townspeople, you know, you know, if they're all Canaanites, but as we see, these are people, part of his clan, from the tribe of Manasseh. And yet, you couldn't probably distinguish them between any other Canaanite living there and today. And like many people today in the church, you wouldn't be able to distinguish them between the world and the true covenant people of God. It's frustrating hearing some of those stories. Imagine how Gideon feels right now. They're calling for his head. They want him dead. And so I say, what does this show us about God? When things like this happen, I'm going to tell you right now, having a high view of the sovereignty of God is going to be what you absolutely need in order to manage, in order to process, in order to deal with this when it happens. When you hear stories like the ones I shared, let alone personal injustices that you experience. Let alone those. You don't have a high view of the sovereignty of God? You go nuts. Now, lest I think anyone understands what I mean by having a high view of the sovereignty of God, I mean, as the psalmist would say in Psalms 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He wills. He's the shot caller. Right? He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Nothing happens. 
not on his watch, right? Because he is the God who never sleeps, nor does he slumber. I always love to point it out when it comes to the sovereignty of God. People ask me about free will, and I always love to say, God's the only one that has really free will, because God's really the only one who can do whatever he wants to do. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he wills. That only applies to him. That's what I mean about sovereignty, right? He's the quarterback who never throws an incomplete pass. So unless you have a high view of the sovereignty of God, knowing that even though the people of God or people who claim to be the covenant people of God are just way off the reservation and they're more like the Canaanites than they should be, to know he's in charge. It's not catching him by surprise. He's the shot caller. He's the king. If it wasn't for embracing a high view of the sovereignty of God, I would have a very difficult time sleeping at night. I would. Or I'd probably very much like Gideon last week when the angel of the Lord comes and says, the Lord is with you, the Lord is with you. And he says, what are you talking about? The Lord's not with us. This is God's fault that we've been oppressed. It's God's fault that things have been going bad for seven years. Wow. Oh, that we all might have a, a higher view of God when we walk out of the doors today. That's my hope and prayer. If you thought God was so big that by the end of the day you'll think, oh, how much bigger he is, and that will bring you much comfort when you witness injustices like Gideon is experiencing right now. So they want him dead. He's about to die. Like, I'm pretty sure that's not how the story ends. Okay. Thank you for the spoil alert. Here's what his dad has to say. But Joash, his father, said to all who stood against him, demanding his head, Will you contend for Baal? Right? They're mad because he tore down the idol to Baal, the storm god of the Canaanites. Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. The irony, the people are coming as if they have to deliver Baal. Typically, it works the other way around, right? You're God and delivers you. Gods don't need to be delivered. And that's the argument that Joash makes. Listen, you're not going to contend for Baal. If he is a god, let him handle Gideon. If he's mad at Gideon, he can deal with Gideon. And if any of you guys decide to advocate on his behalf, you're going to die. It's quite interesting, Joash's response, and it almost makes us wonder if maybe Gideon's father, Joash, has become convinced of the folly of his pagan ways. It sounds as if he has now drawn the correct conclusions from his son's actions. But that's, that's our job. Our job is to obey God. It's our job. God's job, results. God's job is to handle the results. Our job, obey God. God's job, the results. What about my, what about my father? What about my father, right? And, and right now it seems like up until this point, Joash has not been walking with God. 
God's the one that grants the repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.25. God does that. What's our job? Obey God. It is a strange providence that God ordains our actions, like Gideon's actions, to bring about the salvation of others. That seems to be at the very least what's happening in this story. And we might think, well, if I go and do what God wants me to do, people might be mad at me. Yeah, maybe. And I hear people tell me a lot. If I break up with her, she won't have any Christian friends. Or if I break up with him, he won't have any Christian friends. Or if I cut off some of these unhealthy friendships, they'll be mad at me. Yeah, maybe. What's our job? Obey. What's God's job? Handle the results. I don't think Gideon's drawn a wrong conclusion. I mean, the reason he wants to go out at night is because he's probably thinking this is going to happen. Worst case scenario, they want him dead. Okay, well, that's played out. Not wrong in that assumption. But for all you know, folks, God's ordained path for the salvation of other people, including people you care about, for all you know, God's ordained path of the salvation of other people will come about through you doing the difficult yet obedient thing like Gideon. Gideon's not under a false assumption. People are, want him dead. Okay. His job? Obey. God's job? You got to handle him. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm a dead man. If I cut off these friendships, if I cut off these romantic relationships, people are going to be mad. They might say things. They might do all types of things to me. I don't think anything is as serious as maybe what our brothers and sisters in Iran, Nigeria, China are facing. But even then, our job is to obey. His job is to handle these people. He's the one that grants repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. He's the one that saves. But I find too often part of the challenge that we have, part of the problem that we have, that hinders us from obedience, is our view of God is just too small. If I obey Him, will He really be there? Will He really have my back? He says, the promise we had last week that Gideon received, right? I will be with you always to the end. Will he? You see, I think part of the problem that we struggle with when it comes to doing hard things, this is a hard thing. I was, I was tough on Gideon last week. This is a hard thing, right? Uh, worst case scenario has certainly happened. But part of our challenge is, is our view of God is so small. We treat God the way his pagan next door neighbors from the tribe of Manasseh do. Oh, poor little God. He, he needs our help. Whatever will he do without us? Oh, we must contend for him, lest whoever would contend for him if we didn't. Of course, Gideon's father, listen, if Baal really is a god, he can handle Gideon. But unfortunately, our response sometimes, how we act, we treat God, Yahweh, the true God, the same way these townspeople do. And in doing so, we belittle God. We don't make much of him, we belittle him. In his 1886 sermon, Charles Spurgeon gave an illustration, which I think will help. He says, suppose, suppose there were some people who had an idea in their head that they needed to defend 
A lion, a full-grown king of the jungle. There he is, the lion, in his cage. A group of men come to attack the lion. Now, my suggestion, Spurgeon says, is to stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him. For he would take care of himself. And then the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. You have the unstoppable God. You know this. As we've worked through Judges, you have the warrior king. He can't be stopped, right? The lion from the tribe of Judah. Spurgeon, I don't know if he had that in his mind when he's thinking of this illustration, right? Whoever heard of defending a lion? Just open the cage, stand back, let it do its thing. It'll take care of itself. That's the, what I mean when I say a high view of the sovereignty of God. Don't be like these townspeople who feel they need to come and contend for Baal. Yeah, maybe so, because Baal's a false god. But you don't have to. You have a big God. A sovereign God who's not caught off guard, who's well aware of the situation, including the fact that people are calling for Gideon's head right now. Oh, he's not caught off guard. He's well aware of this. And he can handle himself just fine. I think sometimes we get in his way. Poor little God. Uh, hardly. He's the unstoppable king. He can handle himself. And I think us viewing him that way would give us more confidence when it comes to doing the hard things. I think we would be that much more empowered to do and make those hard choices like Gideon when you realize my king is the unstoppable warrior king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He doesn't need me defending him. He's got this. He's got this. It's your God. Oh, that we all might have a, a bigger view of him. He's not small and puny, needing help like Baal. Not by a long shot, folks. And so, the townspeople seem content with Joash's father's response to the situation. They back down. Gideon survives. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. The Midianites are on the move. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the East, they're on the move inside Israel territory. Now all the Midianites, verse 33, and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan River and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Verse 34 is going to be very significant to many aspects of what we're about to talk about now. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. That phrase, that's going to be huge. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he, he sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites. Now remember, those are his people. That's his, that's his clan. Remember, there's 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe has subcategories, like subgroups, clans. That's his clan, one of the many clans inside Manasseh, his tribe, one of Joseph's sons. So he sounds the trumpet, and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. You're like, didn't they just want him dead like a hot minute ago? And you're, you're right, they did want him dead a hot minute ago. You're like, how does that happen? Crazy. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to the tribe of Asher, to Zebulon, to Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. 
It's so remarkable that his clansmen come when he calls. But why? Why do they come? Why do they respond to him? Are they impressed with Gideon? Maybe his leadership? His courage? I mean, the angel of the Lord, speaking to him in verse 12, addressed him as a valiant man, valiant warrior. Had they heard of this address? Why do they respond when he calls? They wanted to kill him a hot minute ago. I don't think it's because he's a valiant warrior, according to the angel of the Lord. I mean, even Gideon's own perception of himself. He sees himself as, remember his response to the angel of the Lord? Listen, this is not going to work. I'm not going to be the savior of Israel. Uh, I come from, of all the clans within Manasseh, lowest clan, everybody in my dad's house, I'm low man in the totem pole, it won't work. So why should they respond? Why do they respond? How does that happen? And my answer is, it doesn't happen. There's nothing that can make sense of this apart from God doing what only God can do. They want him dead. They're furious. They're mad. And then two verses later, he sounds the trumpet and they rally behind him. What's the answer? The only thing that makes any sense is verse 34. But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I believe that is the answer. When God's on the roll, who can stop him? Who can stop the Lord Almighty? That's that's the only way this happens. Only way this makes sense. God doing what only God can do. Oh, that should give us encouragement for those of us who maybe like Gideon or kind of pansy and we're afraid. What will people think? God's called you to do that? Do it. You do it. Your job, obey. His job, results. Well, that's exactly what happens. But Gideon, oh Gideon, he, uh, he needs some more affirmation, it would seem. Verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. And so, if there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Put the blanket on the ground. If the blanket's wet and the ground is dry, I'll know. Verse 38, And it was so, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Done deal, right? Nope. Not a done deal. Then Gideon said, God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just, just once more. Please, let me, let me test just, just once more with the fleece. Please, let it be dry on the fleece only and on all the ground. Let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry in the fleece only, and on the ground there was dew. It was wet on the ground, the fleece was dry. These verses almost catch us by surprise as the reader. Gideon needs more assurance. Where does that come from? God's given him a lot of assurance. Last week, can I bring you the food? 
Need a sign, brings in the food, boom, vaporizes it with fire, then the messenger disappears. That's sign number one. Sign number two, today, many nights approach, rallies the troops, the guys who want him dead from his own next door neighbors, his own clansmen, the Abyssalites, they show up. How does that happen, God? But it's not enough for Gideon. He apparently feels that he needs more assurance. And I say, where does that come from? And I think it comes from a deficient faith. I think it comes from a deficient faith. Now, popular to, popular, contrary to popular interpretation, um, this text doesn't have anything to do with determining God's will. I, I always like to point that out because some people are like, oh, well, I need to just lay a fleece down on the ground like Gideon. And over the years, we're like, we, we use that phrase, um, not that maybe we literally do that, maybe some of you have, I don't know, but, but it's become popular that this, this text is all about deciphering God's will for your life. But it's not. Gideon already knows God's will for his life. It is to be the deliverer for Israel. He knows that. I, I feel the need, maybe, to insert a quick footnote, even though it's not even talking about that, because someone says, well, can you speak to that just for a quick second? All right, I'll answer it here so we don't have to in small group. <laughs> can you put... Because you say, can, can you at least talk to this idea? I really, I know the sermon's not about that, but speak to this idea of, well, what is it when it comes to God's will for my life? I really would love to know. I've been just wondering and wondering for so long. Uh, can you throw the text up on the screen from 1 Thessalonians 4, guys? Yeah. So, oh, wow, it says, this is the will of God right there. How easy is that? For this is the will of God. You want to know what His will is? Right here. Your sanctification. You being set apart by him, for him. Oh, by the way, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's his will. Okay? That's his will. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things. That's pretty serious. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Seven, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You want to know what his will is for your life? It's right there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8. And if you want to ignore this, you're not ignoring Paul. He says you're ignoring God himself. You're saying, forget you, God. Once again, this text has nothing to do with God's will. That's not the issue here. Back to Judges, please. The request on the part of Gideon for a sign is not a sign of faith. It's a sign of unbelief. Gideon's about to go and battle the Midianites, as we'll see next week. But the battle, the battle that Gideon is fighting right now has already begun. The physical battle, it'll happen later. But Gideon right now is, is battling. And his battle is against unbelief. Will I believe God? That's the issue of the fleece. It's not discerning his will. It is, will I believe God? Can I believe God? There's a disconnect between the head and the heart. I've heard Piper say it so many times. The longest 10, 12, 15 inches is between our heads and our hearts. 
God's already made it clear what His will is, not just for Gideon, but for every single one of you. Obey. Trust Him. Believe in Him. But he's struggling. He's struggling. It's easy for you to say that, Joe. Yeah, it is. doesn't make it any less true. There's the battle. I remember five years ago, almost to the day, a little over five years ago, I found myself in a very difficult position. Much like Gideon. It wasn't a life and death situation for me like it was for Gideon, though it felt like that. And sometimes the obstacles or the challenges that we face or the hard decisions that we know we need to make, sometimes they can feel that way. And I was struggling. I, I know this, right? I know these things, but transitioning from knowing to experiencing my theology, that's a good prayer to pray. God, may I experience my theology. That's a whole nother matter. But this is, I think, the thought that I think God gave me to help me, and, and I, maybe it'll help you. I was thinking, if God can save me from my sin, right? Gospel, life, death, burial, resurrection, right? If Jesus can die on the cross for me, be buried and rise again on the third day, if I can trust him with with my eternity, if I can trust him with my salvation, the apex, right, of, of the Bible, the entire Bible, the culmination right there, then could I not also trust him with something far lesser? If I can trust him with something so big, like my salvation, then it stands to reason I could maybe trust him with something much lesser, like a certain situation I'm in. I don't know if that helps you. It helped me. Oh, and praying too, God help me to experience my theology, to to, to go beyond just what I have here and, and feeling this, because I think Gideon right here, this is the battle. It's the battle for unbelief. It is the fight for faith. And right now, Gideon, he's using every single means to try to get out of the mission which he's been called to get out of. I mean, every single thing in the book, he just he wants to get out of it. Remember in my single days, asking this girl, hey, you want to go grab something to eat? And she's like, oh, I can't. It's uh, my roommate's boyfriend's cousin's sister's birthday party. I have to, I'm so sorry. Of course you are. But I'm tenacious, so I asked a week later, hey, you want to go grab Chick-fil-A? Who doesn't want to get Chick-fil-A? You know what she tells me? Oh, my grandma, she made me this soup, and I, I, I probably need to go eat it before it goes bad. Right? I mean, like Gideon, she was doing everything to get out of this. Right? That's Gideon. He's doing every single thing to get out of doing the right thing. Obeying God. And you wonder, you wonder about the other people in Israel. What's their faith like? Like, is Gideon really the best example of spiritual maturity at this time? You wonder, right? Like, is he it? I think Gideon's struggling with what a lot of people struggle with. Like, they, they, they know God in a general sense. 
in maybe the Sunday school stories. They know facts about him, but he's really trying to make that, really trying to bridge that beyond just that knowledge aspect to that, that personal sense, that covenantal sense, that intimate sense. That's Gideon's battle. That is the real fight that he is in. It's the fight for faith. It's the battle that he has against unbelief. Will I obey God? Will I trust God? Is God big enough that I know that he's got my back here? And what's truly remarkable in this story is that God even responds to him each time. Okay, you want the fleece wet? Fine. You want the fleece dry and the ground wet? Fine. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. But unlike Yahweh, Gideon's not true to his word. There's Gideon. There he is. I mean, he's just needing this assurance like a needy ex-boyfriend or girlfriend who just needs this constant validation all the time. And it's just he's struggling, right? Can I I believe? Can Can I really trust? And what do you see about God? Don't miss this. You see, God's so kind in this story, so slow to anger, so abounding in love. He just, he just rolls with Gideon. He's so patient with him. Here's Gideon with this immature faith like many of us have at different points in our life, treading water. And God, who is so set on the preservation of his people, it's humbling. And I'm so thankful for glimpses like this story into who my God is. And so my prayer, because we should pray, my prayer for us is that God would give us faith, guys. That God would give us faith to trust him, to trust what he says, that we might experience our theology, not just know, okay, I know what God wants me to do, but God, help me to do it, to feel it, Help me to remember that we serve this unstoppable God. He's not a puny God, right? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Spurgeon would say, you don't need to defend a lion. Open the cage, stand back, he'll be fine on his own. Like a real lion, he can take care of himself. Our job, our job's to obey. His job is to handle the results. So as the team comes, I want to pray for us, guys. I want to pray that God would do for us what he's doing for Gideon. Lord, we praise you for your patience. We praise you for your patience, Lord. You're so kind to us. You're so good to us. But Lord, we don't want to presume upon your grace. We don't want to. Lord, I pray that, I I know maybe some of us are battling, doing different things, making tough decisions, having tough conversations. I don't know. Lord, but I pray that you would give us faith to trust you, that you would give us assurance. Lord, like the man says in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's parts of me in which my faith, like Gideon's, is deficient and immature, and I'm just struggling, Lord. 
So, Lord, I pray that we would experience our theology to remember that our God, that you are like a lion. You don't need us to defend you. You can take care of yourself. And that knowing that might transcend and strengthen our faith. Help us, Jesus, to trust you. Pray this in your name. Amen.